Romans chapter 8. And last time we ended in verse 15. And we saw there in verse 14, it says, And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And then we saw at the end of verse 15, that you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. We ended on the note that Jesus did not die on the cross and raise again to give us a religion. He didn't replace an Old Testament religion with a New Testament religion. It was the religious people that had Jesus put to death. That Christ died and rose again that we can have a relationship with him. And he wants nothing other. He wants you to commit your life to him, to surrender your life to him, and then his spirit can actually live in your hearts and become a new creature. And now you can have a relationship based on the family where he is our father and we become his children. Now, how do you know if you're a child of God? You are led by the Spirit. You see, it's not about going to church or reading your Bibles or praying or witnessing or all the other spiritual duties. You say, but, but, but we don't need to do those things. If you're led by the Spirit, you will be in church. (laughs) You will be reading your Bible. You will be praying. You will be witnessing. You'll be doing that and, and much more. And, and, and see, it gets a little tricky. Because right now, this morning, you could be sitting beside somebody that is religious. And they're in church, not because they were led by the Spirit here to church. They're here because they're religious. You know, they, they're not here because God's spirit lives in them and God's their father and they're in this fellowship with the Lord where they laugh and cry and walk and talk and live and, and him and they live and move and have their being in this fellowship with God and fellowship with others. It's, it's not why they're here. They're here because they're afraid they're gonna be blackballed by God if they're not here. They're, they're here because they don't wanna be a heathen. They're, they're, they came here, they... They endured the singing. They got as close as they could to the back row. They're enduring the sermon. Their favorite part is when I say, let's close in prayer, and their heart sort of is happy for a little bit, and and they're heading towards the door as quick as they can. It's like Friday after the last moment of work. They want to get out of here because... I did my duty. I, I've done my religious thing and it's, it's painful, but it's over. You, you see, they don't have fellowship with God. None of this is creating a greater intimacy. They're not being led by the Spirit into hearing what God's Spirit is saying to the church today. They weren't led into worship and, Daddy, Daddy, I love you. It didn't happen. And so afterwards, they don't really have anything to talk to you about either. They don't have anything to fellowship with you about. The Charger game's blocked, so we don't have anything to talk about. (laughs) It's like, I'll be nice, I'll eat a donut, and yeah, I just gotta get out of here. There's no life. 
And this is why it's so essential that we hear Romans 8. As Dr. Barnhouse said, that every Christian's Bible falls off a table, it should open to to Romans 8. This chapter, we could take one verse and preach an hour on it, every verse. It's, It's like looking down at the Grand Canyon. Or it's like being in a boat at the bottom of Niagara Falls and feeling the the majesty of it. Nobody can truly preach through this chapter and do it justice. But for sure, we understand as we read this chapter that, that it's the Spirit of God who wants to live in us to create a relationship. Even in our sinful conditions, God's Spirit can lead us in to that fellowship that intimacy, that relational thing. And, and ultimately, God's Spirit's going to lead us to, to God as our Father. And, and we have this heart now of just, Father, Daddy, I love you. And notice in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's, it's something that we get in a spiritual realm. Where God's spirit is with our spirit and there's this fellowship and, and I can sense my, fellow, my spirit is alive. Often I sense God's spirit in my life when I'm blowing it. I sense God's grief. I sense God's quenching. And even though I, I sense God's spirit grieving because of my stupid choice, I'm sort of happy going, yeah, you're in there. And then if I continue to pursue that sin, well, he's got a paddle. And it says in Hebrews, he spanks every son whom he loves. And I'm like, I'm a son. Look at my bruises on my butt. I'm a child. You know, it's, it's, it's better, though, to sense God's spirit when you sense him rejoicing that you gave yourself sacrificially for the benefit of another. Or you gave your life obediently, giving yourself to seeking him or to serve one another and you sense God's pleasure that yes, you're walking even as I would walk if I were in your shoes. And, and God wants us to know that, that sense of his spirit in our life and our spirit can sense the life that God's spirit is giving us. And he says in verse 17, and if... Children, let me just stop here just a moment. Because Paul realizes that all people reading this are considering themselves Christians, but not all people that consider themselves Christians are Christians. If you're truly a child of God. A matter of fact, as we go through the Gospels, Jesus said more than one time, That on the actual day, there are going to be many people who believe themselves right with God going to heaven. And they were quite shocked when Jesus told them otherwise. And he didn't say it's going to be a handful of exceptions. He says, many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, open unto me also the gates into heaven. And Jesus will say in that time, I've never known you. And they begin to make their argument. As we look at the different passages, some of them make their argument of presence. 
I was there when you preached. I was there when you did miracles. I, I, I could recite to you back a sermon you preached. And he said, I, I don't argue with that. But you are doers of iniquity. You never did my will. You see, there's a group of, of people that think they can sort of create their own standard and God will accept it. Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, not like you real born-again types. But I'm a Christian in my own way. And it's sort of like in their mind, they came to Christ saying, hey, number two, five, seven, and eight, I'll submit to that. But number one, three, nine, ten, uh-uh. If you want me to be a Christian, you've got to take Christianity on my terms, God. And in their mind... Jesus said, if that's the best you can do, yeah, I accept it. You're going to go to the same heaven with everybody else, even though you didn't surrender your life to the degree that everybody else did. Shh, keep it quiet. Don't a whole bunch of people doing this, but yeah, you're, you're, you're in your own special category. And in their mind, they're living out life in their own way, in their own will, and, and they're getting that day going, hey, open unto me. You never did my will. I know. Look in the fine print down below. I'm an exception. And he's going to say no. Now, some people have some pretty powerful arguments. They actually said, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I worked miracles in your name. And again, the Lord doesn't argue on that point at all. But he then again tells them, I've never known you. Why? Because you did not do my will. Jesus made it clear there's no exceptions. He said, I alone am the way, the one way, the one truth, the one life. There's not 10 different versions of the Christian life. There's one. And that's the walk as Jesus walked. Jesus describes that one way as a narrow road that leads to life. And few are them that find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many are those who go on that. And so there's a a heavy moment here in the midst of a joyful chapter where he, in essence, says, as Paul says later in Corinthians, check yourself to see if you be in Christ. If you're a child, then you're being led by the Spirit. If you're a child... God's Spirit is leading you to cry out to Him as Father, Daddy, Daddy. And it's a wonderful thing just to to know Him. You know, we slip and fall and sin. We don't come to the big guy upstairs, Almighty Deity, and walk into a courtroom and make our case. It's just, you know, just like a little child that slips and falls. They just, give me a hug. I'm bleeding. I'm bruised. Help me. Give me a Mickey Mouse Band-Aid. You know, it's... I just, oh, I just want to be here. Just hold me for a while. That's that wonderful thing that God creates in those who are truly born again, who become children. So it doesn't say if you're a Christian, if you're attending church, if you are, in the legal sense of the word, a follower of Christ. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, if children. If you're a part of the family of God, you'll know it. Because you're in the family. And if you're a part of that family, in verse 17 he says, then you're heirs of God. Referring to 
God the Father, all that the Father has, he's given to you that inheritance. And notice here, you're joint heirs with Christ, God's Son, the second person of the Trinity. Last Wednesday night, we looked at this in Hebrews chapter 2, where Jesus calls us his brethren. And not just why he was on earth in human flesh, but throughout eternity. He continues to share in our humanity. Jesus, 100% God, but yet came 100% into human flesh. And when he raised again from the dead, he has embraced that part of humanity throughout all of eternity. Only one man-made thing will make it into heaven. The scars that we put upon Jesus' body remain, as we see in the book of Revelation. But throughout eternity... We, Christ continues to call us brethren, human brethren. And so we are joint heirs with the Son, equal to the, of what the Father has given unto Jesus. We also share in that inheritance throughout all eternity. But notice in the middle of verse 17, there's another if clause. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Now I'm not going to go into it this morning, but... The Lord does give us some indication that when believers go through their judgment, not at the white uh, throne bema seat of judgment, not not the white throne judgment, but the bema seat of Christ where we are rewards, and not all Christians will receive the same reward. Some will have greater rewards than others depending on how they have followed and obeyed God. And so if we have suffered with him or as him, if we have laid down our life obediently to the Father as Jesus did, then we can have an incredible reward equal to that which Jesus has. Not all believers will suffer to that degree or willing to surrender themselves to that degree. But he makes it clear that if we We'll lay our lives down and follow the Father obediently as Jesus did. We'll share in the same exact glory as Christ himself. And in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed, notice, in us. Now, as we look at the New Testament, Paul and the New Testament church, We're so overcome with heaven that the earthly difficulties didn't affect them the way I think it does us today. Paul says to put our mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In 1 John, he says, Oh, children, I don't know what we're going to be like, but I do know that when we see him, we'll be like him. And everybody who's thinking about this all the time are going to, purify themselves even as he is pure that our mind being on heaven our 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 thoughts thinking about being in our new body no pain no sorrow no suffering being with the lord that 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 heavenly focus helps us to not be overwhelmed by the earthly difficulties and paul actually here is saying that I'm so overwhelmed with eternity and with heaven, with the new body and and with being with the Lord face to face and and, and, in a world where there's no sin or sorrow, but a 
an eternal, I'm just so overwhelmed with that, that these sufferings and tribulations are just, they're just little gnats. They, they, they don't affect me. Because I'm just so comparing it with what's going to come that this momentary suffering is just, it's not a big deal. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Woohoo! You guys are doubly blessed Christians. You don't get just to believe in Jesus, but you... Lucky, you get to suffer for his sake. Man, blessings just keep coming your way. It's interesting how Paul looks at this. He he doesn't say, you're in this human body, you got saved. You're going to go to heaven, but you just sort of stick it out and everything sucks until you get there. You know, that's not his attitude. His attitude is like, Even the process of getting there, even though it's difficult, every inch of it, it, it's it's wonderful. In James 1, he says, man, let the trials have their work because right now they're creating in you a character as you persevere through the trials. And, And there's no end to what God can do in you, even to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's pretty radical. To realize what God can do in us and through us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10. Paul telling Timothy who seemed to be a little down about his persecution. But you have carefully followed my doctrine. My manner of life. My purpose. My faith. Now notice the long suffering. Love. Perseverance. Verse 11. Persecutions. Afflictions which happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And by the way, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And in verse 12, here's a wonderful Christian promise for all of us. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, not maybe, but what? Will, for certain, suffer persecution. You know, we need to stop here a moment. And realize that this isn't some nice little theology Paul's teaching us. Paul is not Professor Paul in some seminary where, you know, he's got three servants, one, you know, trimming his nails and another giving him a cup of coffee and saying, yeah, Christians persecute, it's theologically possible. And uh, if that happens, just rejoice. Uh, please, the other nail. Make sure, not, don't cut the cuticle so short. I mean, that's not where Paul was coming from, was he? Paul was in the middle of persecution. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, talking about people sort of mocking him, he he comes back at him. And and he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I'm more in labors, more abundant, in stripes, above measure, in prisons, more frequently, in deaths often, Paul was stoned to death. He raised, he came back alive. From the Jews, five times I've received 40 stripes minus one. Can you imagine getting beat one time is bad enough, but five different times, 39 stripes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And by the way, in Acts 
28, there's a four shipwreck. Four times. One time a night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils in the waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toils, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, on top of all of that, that's nothing compared but what comes upon me daily, and that is the deep concern for all the churches. All those whippings and beatings and shipwrecks aren't anything compared to the heavy heart I have praying for the Christians to grow and to stand strong in the Lord. It's pretty amazing when we, we look at this and, and we realize that when Paul's talking about the present sufferings, <laughs> he wasn't talking about them at a, at a, a small degree. Now, I just read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But this is what's amazing. Look at Paul's commentary in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Seven chapters before he gives us the list. Notice what he calls that list. For our light afflictions. (laughs) Beaten five times with whips. Robs with rods stoned to death. Perils. And he's like... Ah, shipwrecks, light's afflictions. Ah, being in prison, light affliction. These light afflictions, which are but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly eternal weight of glory. There's a weight of glory that God is working in our life through these present sufferings, these present difficulties. And Paul here in Romans 8.18 says, when you get the whole picture, our life on earth is just this little blip of time. And then we're going to be in our brand new bodies, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. And the weight of glory we have for eternity is based upon how well we did on this earth in obeying God and following God and, I might add, enduring through the sufferings that come our way because we're standing for Christ, living godly. Now in verse 19 of Romans 8, for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God, we know in the book of Revelation, is at the end of the tribulation period. All the believers that were raptured at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period and all the believers before are with the Lord for a seven-year marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of that time, we all mount up on horses behind Jesus and we all ascend to the Mount of Olives. Jesus goes down into the Valley of Armageddon, has the final battle against the wicked kings of the earth. And then there's a thousand-year millennial reign where Christ himself We'll be teaching Bible studies every day. We are the kings and priests unto our God on the earth for that thousand years. And the earth is going to be reestablished back to its original glory before Adam and Eve sinned. And we'll be with the Lord for that thousand years. After the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released from the pit. And those who have been on the earth will have a chance to choose or reject Christ. 
And amazing, after being with Jesus a thousand years, many of them will choose Satan. It's pretty amazing. Sort of God's final period on what a miracle it is that we're saved. (laughs) Sort of the final period on how desperately, deceitfully man's rebellious, wicked heart is. But creation sort of got stuck with the short end of the straw. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they began to die, but all of creation also was corrupted because of that sin. And so it says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility by Adam and Eve's sin, not willingly, they just, they didn't choose it, they don't have a free will the way man does, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, labors with birth pangs together until now. So Al Gore got it almost right. It's not global warming, it's global groaning. And it's not just over the heat. It's over all of it. Sinful man, And his sin destroying creation. It's happening. But you know, it's still amazing to, through a a creation that's corrupted and decaying and dying, it's still amazing, isn't it? Looking at rolling green hills or a butterfly that falls on, lands on your arm, or looking out over the giant ocean. It's still amazingly glorious, but imagine what it's going to be like when the Lord gives us a facelift and puts it back the way it originally was with Adam and Eve. I I I don't think we can imagine it, but creation knows. If you would, it has built into it the knowledge of what it once was and could be, and, and it's waiting for that rejuvenation, waiting for us to rule and reign, Adam and Eve's of the earth in obedience to Christ in our new bodies. Well, in verse 23... Not only that, not just creation, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly are waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Anybody groaning about your body? No? No? Give it a couple years. Uh, Yeah. I'm eagerly, eagerly waiting for the redemption of the body. Eagerly waiting to see the, the new earth things be established. You know, there's a lot of verses. I mean, God's really excited for us to know that reestablishing. And in Psalm 96, 11 and 12, we get some pictures of that thousand-year millennial reign and, and ultimately heaven, where there's a new heaven and a new earth. But it says in Psalm 96, 11 and 12, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. In Psalm 11, verse 6 through 9, getting a picture of that millennial kingdom. The wolf also will dwell with the lamb. They'll quit being carnivorous. And the leper shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. little tiny child with this big giant bear and lion and leopard. No fear, no, no death in the same way. 
The cow and the bear will shall graze. Big old giant bear next to a cow and they're both chewing on the grass. The young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw with the, along with the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. Like an earthworm. He's down there picking a gut, a viper, and it's like a big earthworm just playing with it. Oh, playing with a viper again. How sweet. There's no fear. No poison. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One more verse. There's so many. Isaiah 55, 12. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So it's almost like creation itself has, this, has a sense of the presence of God. And, and it's just vibrant and happy. So, you know, we look at a tree now, I guess it's sad. Um, still pretty good peaches and apples and stuff on there, but... Uh, There's evidently a a joy in creation that we don't know about, that one day we're going to see. But our bodies, in in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way in more detail. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Amen? Oh, yeah. No more pain, no more sorrow. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident yet well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. I think we see that every day we look in the mirror, don't we? Corruption. Mortal. Get to heaven, look in the mirror. Perfect. Incorruptible. Immortal. Can't wait for that day to come. But in the meantime, back in Romans 8, 23, we groan within ourselves, waiting for a redemption of our body, being swallowed up in life, death being swallowed up in life. And in verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? So, you know, you can keep trying all the, the various care, you know, body care products, and, you know, you can keep scrubbing things and staining things and plucking things, and you can keep at it, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not, our, our incorruption is not going to happen here. It's not something we see. The incorruption we're going to see is a brand new body, a heavenly body. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So while we're in this body, we keep persevering. We don't check out early. We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. We don't get depressed and discouraged saying, why bother? Another wrinkle, another ache, another pain, another suffering, another 
depressing situation? No. We keep persevering. God has me in this body for a reason, whether it's another day, another hundred years. Lord, I'm going to continue to be faithful, to rejoice in everything and in everything give thanks. I'm going to continue to bear fruit, whether it's an easy time or a hard time, whether I'm on the mountain or in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm yours, Lord. I'm going to keep pressing forward. Now, God hasn't left us on our own to persevere. In verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. Boy, we sure have a lot of them, don't we? In particular, one of the biggest weaknesses we all have is we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, or we don't pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself, it's emphatic. God's Holy Spirit is going to overcome our weakness of prayer. And he's going to make intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, some people see this as a reference to tongues. But as we look in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, it says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. Also in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14 and 15, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I pray with the spirit, and I also pray with understanding. I sing with the spirit, and I also sing with understanding. In both of the references in 1 Corinthians 14, it's our spirit praying a language, not that it's a human language, but yet it is our spirit praying a language. But here what we find in, in Romans 8, it's God's spirit praying. And it comes next to our spirit in just a groaning. In other words, the, the engine's running and we get vibrated, <laughs> if you would, by the warmth of the, the Holy Spirit praying on our behalf. And in verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the spirit is. Because he, referring to Jesus, makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. In Hebrews it says, Jesus ever lives to make intercessions for us. He's full of joy to help us in our weakness to pray in a deeper way than we could ever do. You know, we we find ourselves limited much, don't we? You know, do I pray for God to deliver them or pray for God to keep them in it and give them strength? Do I pray for God's blessing on them or do I pray God to chasten them? You know, I don't know. I don't know what God's will is here and I don't want to pound the pavement, so to speak, and praying that, and, and I'm not sure. And that's where often we just have a joyful burden. I love when I just have this burden to pray. Where I'm just, I have somebody on my heart, sometimes it's my children or my wife or a dear friend, or sometimes somebody will come to mind I haven't thought of for 20 years, and I just have this, I can't, I can't escape it. I can't get away from it. It's, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there's this burden, and wake up in the night, and I find myself burdened, and just crying out, and just, Lord, I, I don't know what to pray, but God. And I sense God's Spirit using my body, my spirit, my mind to pray in the perfect will of God, and Lord, just use me as a vessel, however you want, especially in the perfect will of God. Now, in verse 28, a scripture that's been called a soft pillow for a weary head. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I've seen many, many plaques that just say we know that all things work together for good, period. It's not what it says, is it? It says to those who are in the process of loving God, and of course we know we're to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Secondly, it's the called. You know, this is a a radical thing that happens when a person becomes born-again believer. God lets them know, whether the scripture or another way, that they are part of an infinite plan. That yes, I got saved today at this moment in time, but as I study the scriptures and as God's spirit lives within me, I understand that God thought about me before time began. God thought about me 10,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago. And in the moment of time I got saved, I realized I'm a part of this plan that's been in process for thousands, millions before time began. And I'm being part of this plan. And I realized that in the midst of my present that there's already a plan in the future that God already has in mind. That I'm a part of an infinite plan of God. That it's a calling that I'm saved. He doesn't need me. But he wants me. And that I'm a part of a destiny that God has had in motion before anything was created. God thought about you. (laughs) He knew you by name before time began. He knew your days, whether it's five days on this earth or 105 days on this earth or whatever. He knows every hair upon your head. He had planned out your DNA, your eye color and the size of your ears and your nose. And he already had in mind to fearfully and wonderfully knit you in your mother's womb before time began. It's, it's just an amazing thing to realize if you are a born again believer here today, it's because God has called you unto himself. What a privilege, isn't it? And if you're living for his purpose. So if you're not presently seeking to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, there may be things coming your way that are negative that are not going to end up being turned around for good. If you're not living in that sense of destiny that I'm a part of God's plan, and I'm living for his purpose, then things can come negatively your way and never have a positive end to it. Now, I don't think anybody's ever perfectly living in the will of God, so I'm not saying if you're living perfectly, this applies to you. Nobody has, nobody ever will. But you know what I'm talking about. I I know often when I'm in my own self-will and bad things start happening, and I'm like, how bad can this get? And I run back. I get back on that narrow road that leads to life, that broad road. Man, there's just too many negative things that can happen that could affect me until the day I die. I don't, I don't want that. I want to be back in the middle of the road. But even as we walk in the middle of the narrow road that leads to life, horrible things happen to us. Horrific things happen to us. Some of it's just earth stuff because we're in a sinful planet. Some of it is right directly from Satan himself. Some of it is, well, we weren't very smart. Did some dumb things. But you see, as we're 
seeking to love God and walk according to his purpose, we can set back and just say, God's going to take all of these horrific, horrible, evil, difficult things, and it's all a part of his master plan. And I can be at peace. Now here it says we know. It doesn't say we're going to see it, we're going to feel it, or even appreciate it. But God has not left us short. He's actually let us know about others who have, we can know about how all things work together for good for them. I think of Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors. Remember his dad saw, man, this, this, is, the, this is the shining star of my sons and raised him up above even his older brothers, which none of them appreciated. He went out to tell them to all get back to work and they had dug a pit in which they were going to kill him and bury him out in the middle of the desert. They were getting ready to do it and his oldest brother Reuben said, no, no, there's a caravan coming. Let's make some money and sell him into slavery. Off he goes to Egypt as a slave. Well, if it's not bad enough being a slave, then he gets accused of raping his owner's wife. He goes to court, found guilty, put in prison as a rapist. But it's interesting as we look at that story, Joseph continued to not have a hard heart or a bitter heart towards God. He continued to have a sense that even in this, God has a plan. When Potiphar's wife tried to get him into bed, he's like, how can I lie with you and sin against God? He hadn't done as so many Jews have done when they've got into hard times going, well, if there really was a God, he wouldn't let me get in prison or in slavery to begin with. And if he is God, he let me be in slavery. I hate his guts. Yeah, I'll do whatever I want to do and become self-willed, not Joseph. And sure enough, in prison, it was discovered that Pharaoh began to have some tormented dreams. And only Joseph could interpret those dreams. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Pharaoh raised him up second to all. When the seven years of famine came, the whole world, including Joseph's brothers, had to come to Egypt. Eventually, he revealed himself to them. They all came to live in Egypt. But in the course of time, his father Jacob died. And his brothers, we find the very last chapter of Genesis, even down to the last few verses. Where his brothers said, now Joseph's going to get his vengeance and kill us all. And when Joseph heard this, he wept. And he said, I'm not in the place of God that I can judge. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. That all of us today are together and alive. Joseph had a sense, these horrific things, slavery, being accused as a rapist, being in prison, and all the other horrible things that happened, these crazy, difficult things, death, suffering, hardship, just the evilness of man in your face. And I don't know how to put this together. I don't know how it's going to work. But he never lost that sense of destiny. He never lost that sense that all these things are working together for good. And indeed they did. They created in him a deep character. They created him a deep godly character. They created him a deep humility. They created in him some amazing things for him to be at that point in life where he needed to be the man of God that he needed to be. We can continue to go through the scriptures and we see many. We see Job. I'll spare the story. You know the story of Job. But how he also knew. You know what? No matter how horrific things are, Though he slay me, yet I'll trust in him. Naked I came in this world, naked I out. Praise be the name of the Lord. We see with David, with Daniel, with many men through the scripture, 
all the crazy, difficult, weird, horrific, bizarre, demonic things. Yet at the end, God brought it around and we got to see, we get to know how that worked in their life. In our own life, we don't really get that opportunity, do we? But yet by faith, we can know that. And in verse 29, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that we might be the first, he might be the firstborn or the preeminent one among all the many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. So he's letting us know that God's got this eternal plan going on. And all these things are working together. And, and God has thought about you before time began. And in the midst of time, God has one goal. And that's for you to be shaped in the image of his son. And hopefully we're all submitted to that, saying, God, we have one goal. And that's to be shaped in the image of you. To walk even as you walked. That's my goal as well. Ultimately, he already has seen our past. He sees our present. He sees our future. That we are going to be glorified together with him. So what, in verse 31, shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is saying, I've called you. I've predestined you. I've seen you already glorified. If God's already saying those kind of things about us, it doesn't matter what your mind's thinking. It doesn't matter what the devil says. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he didn't spare his son, he's not going to spare anything lesser. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercessions for us. Do we get this sense of how much God is on our side? God is in our corner? That it doesn't matter what man or devil or yourself or anybody else throws at us, God has an eternal plan. God's already thought it out in advance. God's already built in safety mechanisms to keep us. We're not going to be condemned. We're not going to be lacking. He's pulled out all the stops. He's given his only begotten son and everything else behind that. But he goes on to say here in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it's written, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. God is letting us know that as Christians, as children of God, whom he loves dearly, who has an infinite plan for our life on earth, we're going to go through some very horrific things, even unto death. We go back through church history. We see people burned at the stake and thrown into the lion's den and all kinds of crazy, difficult things to this day. There are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Christians on the earth right now imprisoned, suffering greatly because they're standing for Christ. And God's going to allow it. Remember Jesus said in John 16, I say this to you in advance so you're not stumbled. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. (laughs) If they curse me, they're going to curse you. If they have no problem arresting me, they're not going to have a problem arresting you. They're actually going to be so deceived, they're going to do harm to you, evil to you, kill you, thinking they're doing God's service. 
They're going to strap bombs onto themselves and blow up a whole store of people thinking they're doing God's service. They'll hijack airplanes, drive them into buildings, thinking they're doing God's service. Don't, don't think that God has all of a sudden lost control or God's weak or God doesn't, didn't know that was a part of the plan and, oh man, oh, you know, sorry guys, I'm just God. You know, it's like I'm all powerful. No, he's letting you know, hey, I'm all powerful, but I'm still gonna allow such things to happen to my children. And so even though it looks like defeat at times, even though it looks like God is allowing more than he should allow. He, he's got it calculated out. He's not going to give you more than you can handle. And in verse 37, Yet in all these things, demonic things, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Some of you are afraid of death today. I think we all are afraid. I think normally we're built to live and I think there's going to be a transition of, of fear as we're getting ready to leave this body to go into the next. I think that's normal and natural. But hopefully that you have a confidence in your salvation that you wouldn't fear leaving the body that you know for certain you'd be present with the Lord. Some of you don't fear death, you fear life. I've had many people say, I wish that day when I came forward to receive the Lord and, and I prayed, Lord Jesus, come to be the Lord of my life, boom, I just heart, died out of a heart attack like that. Because I have been the worst Christian on earth the last five years. The best moment I ever had is when I said, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, boom, died. That would have been the best thing. I have been a complete screw up ever since. I've been a horrible Christian. I'm trying, but I just got so many weaknesses of the flesh. You know what? Don't be afraid of life. God's greater than you. Where your sin abounds, his grace abounds more. God's not patient as we are patient. He's patient to a degree that we can't even fathom. His love endures all things, hopes all things. His love towards you will never fail, even though you're weak and struggling. Don't fear life. Nor all the demonic hosts, the angels, the principalities, the powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Some of you guys are afraid of the present right now. You know, I've lost my job. I'm losing my house. I lost my... You know what? We don't have to worry about tomorrow. (laughs) Jesus makes it clear what you need to eat, drink, and where he's taking care of. 1 Timothy 6, it says, with food and clothing, with these we should, really must, be content. Godliness with a contentment is great gain. The problem is, is that we're so used to so much more than that. And I think in our American Christianity, we've attributed God to giving us all those things. Thank you, God, for the house, our houses. Thank you for the vacations and all the cars and all the education and all the the motor homes and all the other plastic wood and metal I have around my house and too much piled up everywhere. It's because you're blessing me. And honestly, I think a lot of that wasn't from God. I think it's because we're in a fat cat country. I think because, you know, the Smiths had one, we had to have one. And I'm not sure why we even have one. We never use it. It's still at the next garage sale. And I, I think a lot of times, I think the devil gave it to us. 
just sort of like, you can't beat them, join them, just bless them so much that they become so materialistic, they become weak as Christians. Remember what Satan said to God about Job. Job only serves you because you've blessed him so much. I, I wonder if maybe four or five, ten years ago, the devil didn't have that same conversation about all his Christians here in America. Oh, they're filling the church up. They're tithing. They're reading their Bibles. They're serving. But it's just because you've blessed him so much. Take away the financial blessings from the Christians in America. They'll curse you. I, I really wonder if the devil didn't have the same conversation with God about us. And you know what's interesting? I think a lot of Christians have cursed God. I was going to church so much and reading so much and praying so much and serving you so much because there was so much blessing. Now that I don't have so much blessing, well, I'm not going to do as much. You want to start blessing me? Well, I'll start doing what I used to do. And in, in essence, Satan was sort of right about some of us. And we need to readjust and come back and say, with food and clothing, period. <laughs> in this I shall be content. And not add to anything more than that. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. What? Blessed be his name. The Lord gives. Oh, blessed be your name. The Lord takes away. No! I hate you. Don't do that to me. You know what? It's okay. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. The Lord is going to take care of us. Neither principalities nor things present nor things to come. Nor height, no matter how high, nor how low the depth, nor any other created thing, demonic, human, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, O Lord. What's the final message God wants us to get here? His love for you is greater than you can imagine. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. No matter how high, no matter how low, no matter how demonic, no matter how difficult, if you're in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with you in that pit. And he lets us know we're going to go through the valley of shadow of death. But when we're there, we need to fear no evil because he's with us. His rod and his staff is there to comfort us and protect us. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word today. And we do know that this morning, this is indeed the word to many of us here today. Either you're speaking in advance of what we're going to be going through in the days coming, or maybe this is a word, just sort of a final period on a season of our life we've been through, or maybe this is the word in season. As a gentleman last night came up and said, I just lost my job Friday. Been worrying, fretting, stressed out. I, then tonight the word so spoke. Lord, we thank you and Lord, I don't want to leave the opportunity. There's some here today that you've brought them here because they realize today they, they're not Christians. They've wanted to count themselves as a Christian, but they haven't surrendered their life to you. They haven't yielded their life fully to your will. They've maybe yielded partly. They maybe yielded religiously. But they have not said, your will be done no matter what that means. And if that's you here today, 
in your heart right now as you're quietly sitting there. God's spirit is speaking to you to repent. Repent of your selfish, self-seeking, self-serving life. Your lustful, covetous ways. Repent. And right now, just fall upon the rock and be broken. Lest that rock one day falls upon you and crushes you to powder. There's an urgency. It's not tomorrow. It's not tonight. It's not next week. It's now. Repent. Forgive me, Lord. And now believe. God loves you. He sent his son to be your savior. I believe that through the work of Jesus Christ, not by my works, but by his death, he has paid for my sins. By his resurrection, he's conquered my sin and death. And I surrender. Now just yield. Lord, I yield myself to you from this day forward. My hands, my feet, my mouth, my body, whatever I possess, whatever I will possess, whoever I am, whatever I will be, I'm yours. I surrender completely to you, no holding back, no reservations. I fully surrender all to you. I give my life into your hands. The Bible says that God's writing your name in heaven, in the book of life, and all of the angels in heaven are rejoicing over you right now. If you're here today as a believer, just thank God right now for his word that sent to heal us, strengthen us, to build us up. Thank you, Lord, for the abundance of your word. Thank you for Romans 8. What an amazing chapter this is. We just lay our lives yielded to you in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen and amen.